Is it wrong for a Christian to go to war, even a just war? Will the rapture occur before or after the tribulation? What are tongues, and are they for today? Two crystal theologians take your questions. Today is Theology Day. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Criswell College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7th, 1941. A date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire. We will not falter. And we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Your host is Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now here's today's host, Andrew Abair. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for Jerry Johnson Live. Uh, the regular host, Dr. Jerry Johnson, is actually on a mission trip with a group of Criswell students to Brazil. And uh, so I'm uh, filling in uh, for him today for Theology Day here on Jerry Johnson Live. And I'm uh, joined uh, in studio by two very special guests. Uh, professor Daniel Street uh, is in the studio with us. He is professor of New Testament and Greek at Criswell College. And then also in the studio is a guest we've had on uh, multiple times before, uh, Dr. Everett Berry, professor of theology at Criswell College. And as many of you know uh, from uh, just our popular shows in the past, Theology Day is the opportunity for you as a caller to call in with any question that you might have on any theological issue. Uh, you might have a question in your mind, uh, if, for instance, is cremation right or wrong? When will the rapture occur, before or after the tribulation? Or uh, what are tongues? What's Calvinism? Is church discipline correct? Any a question uh, that you have in your mind, you can call in. Uh, the number to call in today is 800-881-9270, 800-881-9270. And uh, thank you so much for joining us, gentlemen. Uh, we're really looking forward uh, to the hour. Uh, but I wanted to start off as, uh, as calls are coming in with uh, something that we've been discussing here in the program. Uh, we've discussed a lot about the war in Iraq and uh, whether it's right or wrong, but uh, I want to talk with y'all, uh, first of all, in the first segment about just war and the just war theory. And uh, for our listeners' sake, uh, many of you uh, may have never heard uh, criteria for a just war theory uh, or really discussed it, but uh, Dr. Richard Land, who is president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote an article in the latest Criswell Theological Review uh, on human rights, genocide, and sovereignty, and he gives uh, criteria for just war. And for our listeners' sake, I'm going to read those criteria, and then I'm just going to throw the question uh, to each of you to say, first of all, is there such a thing as just war? And if there is, is it ever right for a, a Christian to partake in that kind of a war? Uh, but the cr criteria of just war, according to Dr. Land, uh, he gives seven, uh, seven criteria. First of all, 
for a just war to occur, there must be just cause. In other words, uh, only defensive wars are defensible. Just uh, cause requires first that the use of force must be a response to a specific act of aggression or the intimate threat of such. Uh, second of all is just intent. Uh, the only acceptable motive must be to restore peace and to secure as much justice as possible for all involved, including the aggressors. Uh, the third criteria for just war uh, is that it, it's a last resort, that you try to uh, solve your problems peaceably before you go to war. So it's a last resort. Fourthly is that it's uh, the, the war is... Uh, uh, ordained by a legitimate authority. In other words, there must be a legitimate government. Uh, this would be the Romans 13 principle, that uh, government is given by God for the uh, punishment of evildoers. Uh, number five, that there's limited goals. In other words, uh, if you're in a war, your your goal might not be to completely obliterate your enemy, but maybe to uh, put it at bay, maybe to stop the aggression. Number six is proportionality. Uh, in other words, will the human cost of the armed conflict to both sides be proportionate to the stated objective, objectives and goals? And then number seven is that uh, there will be non-combatant immunity. In other words, the, uh, no armed conflict can be just, which does not seek to disqualify non-combatants as legitimate military targets, and which does not seek to minimal, minimize collateral inadvertent civilian casualties. So uh, 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 basically you would seek to uh, protect innocent life and only fight combatants. So I want to throw it, uh, first of all, to Dr. Barry and just say, do you think biblically and theologically speaking, is there such thing as just war? Uh, I'm, we can talk about specifically the war in Iraq or any war. Is there ever a case of just war? Well, I think we would have to initially agree that there has to be such thing as just war in particular contexts. For instance, when the Lord commissions Israel to uh, holy war, we would call it that, with regard to Canaan. Likewise, in the book of Revelation, when Christ comes back as king to establish his kingdom on the earth, he declares war, and his declaration of war actually is the means through which he defeats his enemies. So just ask the question, is there such thing as just war? Yes, in some context, of course. The question, though, for us, where the rub comes, is asking the question as to whether or not a Christian should be a part of a civil government that is involved in war. And that's where the rub comes. And you can ask questions, can, should Christians serve as policemen? Should Christians serve... Sure. Uh, in, as a deputy or uh, in prisons or in places where physical force and harm and possibly even death is going to be a, a contingency that can occur. Should Christians, should Christians be involved in any of those kinds of circumstances? And if you're going to answer in the positive, then it's going to lead you to consider whether or not they can serve as soldiers as well. Well, let's take that question and, and throw it to Professor Street. Uh, Daniel, do you believe that uh, you can be a good Christian and a good soldier? In other words, you can fulfill the duties given by Christ and ful uh, fulfill the duties given by a commanding officer who might require you to take the life of another. Well, I'm not sure that's the right question necessarily to ask. Um, I guess I'd be – what does a good soldier constitute? What constitutes a good soldier? Well, I mean I think there would be multiple things that would constitute a good soldier. I'm thinking in terms of warfare. You're in Iraq and your commander requires you to go on the battlefield and take the life of the enemy. Right. Who is my enemy? Let's just say for the purposes – of argument, the Iraqis. Or the right, and I think Iraqi that's where insurgents. the Christian has to start, is by defining who my enemy is. Um, and will I love my enemy? And can I love my enemy and kill him at the same time and, and drop a bomb on his house at the same time? And so that's, 
That's at the root. That's at the root of all of these issues that we're dealing with. Um, and I guess um, I can conceive that uh, a Christian could be a good soldier. Um, a Christian could do a lot of things that um, may not necessarily be in keeping with loving one's enemy. Um, I'm just not sure that's the right way to frame the question. I guess I, what I want to ask is what does it look like to love your enemy in war? That's the question I think Christ would have us ask and answer. And I think another question to add would be, uh, you know, because uh, a command is to love the enemy. Uh, but in a sense, uh, uh, many people think that a just uh, act of war on a part of a Christian would be – it would have to be an act of love. In other words, for a Christian to kill someone else, it can only be in an act of love. In other words, you're protecting innocent life. And sometimes the only uh, way to protect an innocent life is to uh, take the life of the aggressor uh, by uh, killing him. And so – the question would be, can a Christian pull the trigger? Right. And I think the actual number of times that you'll be put in that situation as a soldier is, is pretty few. Sure. Um, I guess I'm thinking more of you're on a battlefield, you're facing um, a Vietnamese soldier, an Iraqi soldier across the battlefield, and then your choice is to pull the trigger or not. You're not defending innocent life. Who's innocent in this struggle? Has that Iraqi soldier bombed your house? Has he tried to kill your wife and children? Um, it's, you know, uh, he probably could think the same thing. I'm defending my comrades in war. I'm defending innocent life. But he could really make it complicated by what if someone in another country, another uh, military platoon, is a professing Christian? And then you right. have an American so soldier's profession. Then you have uh, God's kingdom at conflict, so it can really get complicated. Yeah. So you're, in your mind, uh, in, in perp- uh, for the purpose of our listenership, what would be criteria where it would be okay? I mean, I'm thinking of the, the soldier who's listening, who's a believer, and thinking, okay, I have a duty to country, but I have a duty to love my enemy. And there might come a time where I'm facing an enemy, and I have to either kill him or be killed or watch uh, a comrade be killed, what would what would be the criteria biblically? I mean, is the biblical thing to stand down, uh, sort of turn the other cheek, or is it right in his place as a part of the legitimate governing authority uh, ordained by Romans 13 to take the life of the enemy? Right. Well, I think the criteria that, that Daniel was mentioning, the, okay, I have a common castle soldier. I may not, they may not be attacking my family, but the reason I'm on the battlefield is because I've been informed from my authorities that they are attacking families. They are killing people. They are involved in evil acts, and so I'm authorized to give opposition in order to stop the violence that they are committing against someone else. It's not necessarily they're committing violence against me, but they're committing violence against someone else. And the loving thing to do in the the just war theory is to eliminate the, the threat so that you can love and the person can experience love without the enemy causing violence and annihilation. All right. My guests uh, today are Dr. Everett Berry and Dr. Daniel Street. They're professors at Criswell College, and today is Theology Day. And you can call in with a, a question on theology. The number is 800-881-9270. And we actually do have a caller on line two. We have Joe from Dallas. And uh, Joe, are you there? Okay, it looks like Joe isn't there. Uh, let's go to Tom in Dallas on line three. Okay, it seems like we're having some tef- technical difficulties, but uh, let's let's uh, c- continue on just war. And- Andrew, I want to throw out a question okay. to the to the panel, sure. this distinguished panel here, and that is the question: Could there be a definition of just war 
um, whereby the war that Peter began to wage in the Garden of Gethsemane would be just or unjust. In other words, when when they're attacking Jesus and they're about to take his rabbi away and he has sword a sword in his hand, is this not a just war? Is this not defending innocent life? They've come at his rabbi, his lord, his master with swords um, to take him away, and Peter strikes Malchus with the sword. Just war or not? Dr. Barry? Just war in the sense of, is Peter justified to do what he's doing? Of course not, because we know that the He's not being murdered. His innocent life is not being taken from him. He's well, they're going to crucify Jesus. But Jesus makes it clear he's giving his life. It's something that he's choosing to do. The authorities that are there are just a part of the script. But Jesus is doing exactly what his father's commissioned him to do. He's there to die. And so I think you have apples and oranges when you try to compare what Jesus is doing with his first coming with wars that go, along, go on today in the world. But I, I, you do have a point that does bring up uh, interesting discussion because Jesus is very clear. Those who have this attitude, the attitude will be put back upon them. Right. Okay, we're, he we're, seems to draw a general principle. Right. Yeah. We're coming up on a break, but I want to uh, get a quick question from uh, Joe from Dallas, and then we'll try to answer it when we come back from the break. Again, if you're listening, you can call 800-881-9270, and uh, it is Open Line Theology Day, so you can call in with any question. But let's go to Joe from Dallas. I would like. I've been reading through First Chronicles and the genealogies, and I would like to know: Can you explain why these were included in the canon of Scripture? All right, Doctor Barry. Well, for instance, in Chronicles uh, and Kings, and sometimes in Ezra and Nehemiah, sometimes genealogies are given because basically they're taking account of the men who are going to have to be qualified to no pun intended, be able to go into war. And so you have genealogies telling you how many men from each tribe. Also, sometimes you have uh, uh, genealogies that are given in order to make a theological point, such as you start with Adam, work your way down. But with Chronicles, uh, sometimes these genealogies are given in order to let people know who's coming out of exile and coming back to the promised land. These are the tribes that are coming back, and here are the names. So God's faithfulness to his people entails faithfulness to individual families, and here are their names. So there is a purpose in every part of Scripture, including genealogies. We see that also in Ruth when you see the the genealogy of uh, Ruth and the the lineage to Jesus. That's right. Uh, this is Jerry Johnson Live. This is your host for today, Andrew Abert. My guests are Dr. Everett Berry and Dr. Daniel Street. If you have a question on any theological issue, anything is up, uh, anything is game, tongues, Calvinism, uh, church discipline, whatever you'd like to call about, call 800-881-9270, 800-881-9270, and we'll get to your uh, question and the answer when we come back. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. 
Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture in the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with his word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's criswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's today's host, Andrew Abair. Thank you for joining us for Theology Thursday. I have guest Dr. Everett Berry, who's professor of theology at Criswell College, and Professor Daniel Street, uh, who teaches New Testament Greek here at the college. And uh, we want to go straight to our callers. If you have a question about any theological issue, anything is on the table for discussion, you can call 800-881-9270. And we have a couple of callers online. I want to go first of all to Tom in Dallas. Hello, Tom. Hello. Um, thanks for your ministry and for taking my call. Sure. What's your question? Uh, Kind of a two-part question. Um, first, uh, after Christ's return, the Bible talks about a new heaven and new earth. Um, when is that, or what will have taken place before that happens? And then the second question is, when the dead in Christ are resurrected, um, is the implication that they are resurrected into an actual physical body? Professor Street. Well, with the first question, when is the new heavens and the new earth? Um, there are certain passages that seem to say that happens right when Christ returns the second time, in a second coming um, passage in Second Peter, for example, puts that right after. Um, but there are other passages which, uh, for example, Revelation 20, seem to indicate that there's a thousand-year delay between Christ's second coming and the actual creation of the new heavens and the new earth. So that would be uh, those would be the options, either immediately or a thousand-year delay. And I think Revelation 20 is fairly clear that there's a millennium that separates the two um, that Second Peter just has not has not mentioned. Um, the second question, what was that again? Remind Tom, me. are you still there? If you'd like to, make- nope. It looks like he's <laughs> that's uh, that was the resurrection into a physical body, and I think Paul's fairly clear about that in 1 Corinthians 15, that uh, we all have the same kind of body that Jesus had at his resurrection. He calls it a body. Um, he says it's not flesh and blood, uh, like our corruptible flesh and blood, but that's it's incorruptible. And, uh, you know, how can you define something like that? Um, Paul uses metaphors, a seed and a tree. Um, they're similar, they're connected, um, but there's a vast difference. All right, if you have a question on theology, you can call us at 800-881-9270, but we have another caller in line, Tom from Fort Worth. Go ahead, Tom. Hello. Yeah, well, thank you for taking my call. I had a question regarding, uh, you know, it, it seems to be common knowledge or common uh, uh, discourse that uh, we worship the same God as a Muslim. And this is, you know, a cursory reading of the Koran and the Bible, uh, it's diametrically opposed and uh, Jesus is denied as being the Christ the incarnate word of God and even in Catholicism it teaches in their catechism that they worship the same God and and this is uh, uh, you know when you uh, take this to 1 John 4 uh, testing the spirits this is this is the spirit of Antichrist and I don't I don't hear it addressed by uh, many in the uh, Southern Baptist community. 
Well, we'll address it here. Dr. Barry, do uh, Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Are Allah and Yahweh the same? I think when we talk about this issue, we have to distinguish between historical similarities or differences and theological differences or similarities. Historically, yes, Christianity and uh, Islam have a common bond in the sense that they're both going back to Abraham. They're both claiming to worship the God of Abraham. But theologically, the question is, does the God of Abraham represent Jesus Christ, or is Jesus Christ the son of the God of Abraham, the divine son of God of Abraham? And that, that's where the, the rub comes. That's the theological distinction there. And once you begin to see the difference in their view of God as God, theologically, then you have to conclude that, no, we're not worshiping the same God because... Christianity historically is in, in the New Testament is making the claim that the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the God who allowed Ishmael to be cre- uh, to be born, etc., has a son named Jesus Christ, who is his prophet, his uh, sent redeemer, a savior, and is also God equally with the Father. And Islam denies that. So, in, theologically, no, we're not worshiping the same God, even though we do have a, a similar historical point of reference, then we both both have our lineage, in a sense, back to Abraham. But the question is, which one has the right trajectory and which one doesn't? Sure. Well, we had a guest on the, the program about a week ago, and he discussed just differences of the characteristics of Allah and Yahweh. And, and he said, uh, you know, Allah is not a God of love, not whatsoever. And while our God is just as is Allah, our God is a God of love, but he said the most striking difference between the two is that, that Jesus is real, and that's just the, uh, the blatant truth. And we've had many Muslims on before who say, you know, if you understand who Allah is and who Yahweh is, it's uh, very uh, obvious that we do not worship the same God. All right. For, for Islam, Allah is the God who has no son. And if that's the God you worship, then it, we can't talk about it being a Christian God. It's Ask a Theologian Anything Day. Uh, it is uh, caller-driven today. If you have a question about any theological issue, you can call in, 800-881-9270. We have another caller from, uh, call from John from Dallas. Go ahead, John. Hi. Are you there, you there John? Me? Yes. Yes, okay. Well, uh, my, my question has to do... I was basically asked to, uh, to not serve at a church because of my tithing record. I used to sing on the praise team as well as work in the children's ministry, and they told me, well, because you don't tie the regular women, you cannot be a a servant uh, leader in this church. And I just can't find any type of reference where that would be the case. Could you elaborate? Sure. We'll, we'll go to Professor Daniel Street for that. Yeah, John. Uh, obviously, there's nothing in the New Testament where we have something like you have to pay in a certain amount in order to get a job in the church or be able to serve in the church. I think what you have in the New Testament is the picture of a community where people are involved um, not just with their time but also with their money. And, uh, I mean, the New Testament takes money very seriously. Ananias and Sapphira get uh, put to death because they lie about their giving practices. Um, The idea would be that you would be 100 percent dedicated to Jesus uh, now, how that plays out in the modern world is difficult. Um, you know, do we mean that you have to give time and of money? And I think certainly we want to avoid legalism here, which which may be what your church um, leaders have fallen into there. I don't want to judge motives or anything, but, um, you know, that you need to give a certain percentage. Um, obviously, there are, you know, exceptional circumstances. But I think the general 
viewpoint of every believer should be to give as much as he can and maybe even more, give until it hurts, give sacrificially to the church, both with time, service, and money. Now, uh, Dr. Street, what about uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which talks about uh, the Corinthians who were in the midst of their poverty, they gave... The Macedonians. uh, The Macedonians, yes, and they they gave of themselves first. Does that have any bearing on this? I mean, what if someone says, I don't have any money, but I can show up to church and teach a Sunday school class? Sure. That's why I said in the modern world, I think, you know, not everyone is going to have um, a steady income, maybe. Um, Not everyone is going to have an income in in the same sense of dollars and cents. Um, and so the key is to have that attitude of giving. I think if you have a regular job with an income, there's no reason that you would be doing less than tithing. All right. We have another caller, uh, Don from Cedar Hill. Go ahead, Don. Yes. Hi. Um, my wife has always um, was raised seven-day Adventist, and she believes that when a person dies, you just go to sleep. And when the resurrection takes place, then we are made alive and uh, are caught up to be with Jesus. And my experience has been when we die, we go to heaven right away and just wondered what you thought about the difference in theology there. All right. Well, we have uh, Daniel Street, who teaches New Testament in Greek, and uh, this is a, a kind of a New Testament question, so we'll go uh, to Professor Street. Well, I think it's also a systematic theology <laughs> question, but I'll give it a shot. I think in the New Testament... Um, you do have passages such as in Luke where Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, you have passages in Revelation uh, 6 where there are souls of the martyrs that are underneath the altar in heaven, and they're crying out to God for vindication. So you, you also have Paul saying that if he departs, he'll be with the Lord, and that, that would be preferable. Uh, that's in Philippians 1. And so there are indications that when you die, you do in some sense go to heaven to be with Christ. You are called uh, by Paul the dead in Christ, um, that God does not abandon you to death. But I want to temper that by saying that in the New Testament, that's not our hope. Our hope in the New Testament is always to be resurrected with Christ. And that intermediate state of being in heaven between death and the resurrection is never called the hope of a believer in the New Testament. Our hope is always the resurrection. Dr. Barry, do you have anything to add to that? I, I appreciate the emphasis upon at the end here, the physicality of the believer, that the hope is to be resurrected in Second Corinthians 5, which is a very loaded passage with regard to this question of the intermediate state. Uh, Paul alludes to the intermediate state as if, in a sense, we're naked, that we have our current temple or current tabernacle or current body, and we're waiting for the new addition. We're waiting for our new incorruptible body, and in death we're present with the Lord, but we're still waiting. And so we wait in this, in a sense, heaven is unnatural because, not that it's bad, but because we exist without the redeemed body. And so we're waiting for Christ to come back so he's our blessed hope so that we can have a new body. So now are you saying that heaven is actually a place before you get your new body, and then the new earth and the, the new heavens would be a, another, sort of another or the, the next in, Yeah, the intermediate state is part and parcel the idea that heaven as it is now is temporary because there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So is it right to, to ask someone when you're witnessing to them, do you know where, you know, do you want to go to heaven when you die or some question like that? I mean, should we be asking them, do you want to go to the new earth when we die? Or Well, I mean, even if they die, they're still going to go to heaven sure. or earth. Or hell, so it's not completely incorrect, but it's just there's something beyond the horizon that we're looking to. 
Today is Ask a Theologian Anything Day. It's your chance to call in and ask any question of theology. You might have a question, where will I go when I die? Where did I come from? Why am I here? You can call and ask uh, Criswell College professors Everett Berry and Daniel Street, and we will be glad to answer them. And uh, we have Jim and Jared. Y'all hold on the line. We'll take your call after the break. Call in. The number is 800-881-9270, 800-881-9270. Or if you can uh, email, you can email talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. We'll see you after the break. listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's today's host, Andrew Abair. Thank you for joining us for Jerry Johnson Live. Today is Ask a Theologian Anything Day. I am standing in for Dr. Jerry Johnson. This is Andrew Abair. My professors uh, are Criswell College professors. They're uh, great. I've taken both of their classes, uh, several classes with both of these guys, and uh, they're really tremendous. I have Daniel Street, who teaches New Testament and Greek uh, here at the Criswell College. He's a Criswell graduate. He's a Criswell man. He also has a degree from Yale Divinity School, and he's uh, finishing up his Ph.D. from Southeastern Seminary. And then I have Dr. Everett Berry, who... Uh, is also a Criswell graduate. He uh, got his master's from Criswell, a Ph.D. from Southern. He teaches theology at the college. He's also interim pastor of Hillcrest Baptist Church in Kemp, Texas. And welcome back to the program. Uh, we are going back to the callers. If you have a, a, a call or a question about any theological issue, you can uh, dial 800-881-9270, 800-881-9270. And we have a couple of callers who held over the break, and we'll go first to Jim from Capel. Hi, this is Jim. I uh, wanted to say that I love your show. Well, thank you. Do you have a question? Um, yeah, my question is, it's an uh, issue of forgiveness. Uh, I know when uh, Christ was on the cross and he looked down on the crowd and he stated, you know, forgive them for they know not what they do. It was in a spirit of forgiving those who were unrepentant at that time. Um, what I, my question is, as far as the prodigal son, uh, if the son had come back, in an unforgiving uh, attitude, how do you think the Father would react, and how should we react as Christians? Well, Dr. Barry preached a message in chapel last semester on the prodigal son, so I'll go to Dr. Barry for that one. Well, in Luke 13, the, the, the story is not really about the first prodigal. It's really about the second prodigal. You have the son who leaves, comes back repentant. And then you have the second son, and it's it's if it, with regard to the question, the father is loving toward the one who comes back and the one who's angry because his other son, his his brother came back. The emphasis of the of the parable, the story, is that we should be kind and loving and recognize how much God has forgiven us. When God forgives other people, we shouldn't have animosity or uh, bitterness or malice toward God whenever he's been so faithful to us. And then when he's faithful to someone else, we shouldn't be jealous because he's giving grace to someone else. We should be recognize that we've been given grace. Well, and I think specifically to the question that he asked was if, if the son comes back in an unrepentant way, but I would ask the question, why would he be coming back in the first place? Right. I mean, I mean, you could have the idea maybe the son's coming back because he just needs food. I mean, he's eating pig slop. Well, at least if I go home, dad will let me back. But he goes back with the attitude of, I'm here. So 
the point of the parable is that the son's not going to go back unless he is repentant. Professor Street, anything else to add? Well, yeah, I think in the New Testament and the Old Testament, repentance is always um, has to precede forgiveness. Um, forgiveness presupposes repentance. I think the uh, case of Jesus on the cross is a little bit different in that he says that they were ignorant of what they were doing, and and so that's a little bit of an exception there. But I think in especially in Matthew's gospel when Jesus is teaching the disciples about repentance, he says, you know, if you confront a brother and he repents. Um, then forgive him. Um, and the assumption is is that, you know, if he doesn't repent, um, there's going to be some kind of separation. But I don't want to psychologize this thing and turn forgiveness into some kind of psychological attitude, um, as in if he doesn't repent, you can harbor bitterness against him and hate him in your heart because that's not what Jesus is talking about. Forgiveness is a restoration of a relationship and not just feeling good about someone. You know, this is not uh, Oprah Winfrey's version of forgiveness. Today is Ask a Theologian Anything Day. You can call in with your question for one of our theologians at 800-881-9270, and we'll go to Jared from Dallas. Jared, are you there? Yes. Go ahead with your question. Uh, Andrew, thanks for taking my call. Um, I wanted to ask if it was biblical, and uh, and if it is, in what context, uh, to place a lawsuit on another individual. Another individual or another believer? Um, either. Either. Okay. Let's go to Professor Street with that. Well, I think there are two passages that deal with this. And first is uh, 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul is addressing lawsuits in the Corinthian church, and that's among believers. And his argument is especially aimed at believers. He pretty much says that there's no excuse for that kind of thing. You need to settle your differences in the church. If you can't settle your differences, you definitely don't take them outside the church and air your dirty laundry. Um, and uh, if it comes down to it, the one who's been wronged should just accept being wronged, just the same way that Jesus did. The second passage, Paul actually alludes to in 1 Corinthians 6, and that's the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if someone tries to sue you, take your coat, you know, give him your shirt as well. Um, that our response, whenever someone does something wrong to us, should be to seek reconciliation, to seek to show them God's love, and not to seek revenge. That should never be our impulse. And so I think uh, to turn that around, you know, um, this is the same kind of question as just war. We're always looking for specific examples of where can I sue someone? Where can I kill someone? And be justified in doing it. And I really think the New Testament is against that kind of attitude. The New Testament wants you to ask the question, where can you show God's love to people? Where can you show other people how you've been forgiven by forgiving them? Um, so, of course, there are always going to be those tough situations, but I think it's better to address it in, as from the big picture. The number is 800-881-9270. If you have a question, 800-881-9270. Let's go to Kim from Southlake. Kim, are you there? Yes. Go ahead with your question. Um, I just had a question about generational curses. You know, I have um, noticed in a couple of different families, uh, a lot of things has happened in past have happened, you know, like what the parents or the grandparents are happening with the children. Is there such a thing as generational curses? Dr. Barry. Well, I would definitely say there's such a thing as generational sin, that you can have kids who are repeating the sins of their parents and grandparents, but the Scripture is clear that when they do that, it's not as if they're somehow hypnotized into doing it. They're doing it willfully. They're repeating sinful behavior on their own. And with any sin, yes, you have all kinds of consequences, but I don't think there's a uh, spiritual voodoo doll that brings some sort of 
special kind of consequence on a family because you have three generations committing the same sin. If, if you have three generations committing the same sin, you're going to get similar consequences. I think you can talk in those terms. When you do have the idea of curse in the Old Testament, the idea is under God's constitution with Israel with regard to the Mosaic Covenant. He makes it clear, if you commit these sins, I will make sure that these kinds of consequences come on you. So you have the idea of cursing versus blessing. Uh, a few uh, weeks ago, we had Taking Back the Family Town Hall, and mm-hmm. uh, Pastor Bruce Schmidt said, uh, who's pastor of Lamar Baptist in Arlington, said that that's not necessarily uh, when it says that the sins of the fathers will visit the children uh, to the third and fourth generation doesn't necessarily mean that you have a higher proclivity to to commit the same sin. Rather, it means the effects of the father's sin right. will affect the children and grandchildren. Do you, would you agree with that? Or do sure, you? sure. You have the ripple effect. You may not see only a certain level of consequence in your own life, but your sins outlive you many times. That's the idea. Okay, 800-881-9270 is the number if you have a question for one of our theologians. Any question is on the table, and we'll go to Ray from Dallas. Hi, yes, this is Ray. Thank you for taking my call. I have a question on tongues. Uh, They're listed as a spiritual gift, and I wanted to know whether they think different kinds of tongues are merely different languages or unknown, and why do Baptists have so much trouble with tongues? Dr. Street. Well, um, on your second question, why do Baptists have so much trouble on tongues, I guess that would depend on which Baptist you talk to. Um, and they would probably all give you different reasons. You know, I think we've all had the experience of turning on the TV and seeing someone babble about And we know they're not speaking in tongues the way Scripture talks about it. And uh, indeed, we have the same response that Paul says you would have if you walked into a church and everyone was speaking in tongues. You'd say they're manic. They're uh, maniacs. They're uh, just babbling on. And uh, so as to your first question, what are tongues? Um, the passages that we have to deal with are 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, and 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul addresses the issue. It's actually the only place he addresses it explicitly. And uh, he says that there are many different kinds of uh, languages in the world. Um, but he says that when you're speaking in tongues, no one else will understand you. So... Um, it's certainly something incomprehensible to those who are in the Corinthian church. Is it another foreign language? Is it a heavenly language, an angelic tongue like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13? Um, he, he doesn't explicitly say, so that's left open to interpretation. But those are really your two key options, that speaking in tongues means speaking another foreign language, human foreign language, or speaking an unknown angelic or heavenly tongue. We had a debate on tongues last week at the Southern Baptist Convention. We had Dwight McKissick and Russell Moore, and uh, it, the debate was kind of surprising in my mind because I thought it would center around whether the gifts had ceased or not, and really it uh, focused on what the gift actually is. Is it a foreign language or is it a private prayer language? And uh, Dwight McKissick would take a uh, verse such as 1 Corinthians fourteen two, one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. And he said, look, I just take this literally. It's a, it's a prayer. That's the very definition of prayer, speaking to God and not to men. That's what tongues is. And uh, Russell Moore seemed to think that this was some kind of, uh, some kind of rhetorical device 
correcting a problem in Corinth, a literary device to argue against something. And it looks like we're coming up on a break, so I'm going to have to – I want both of your answers on that, and uh, we'll discuss it in the next segment. But we might have one a time for one or two more callers in the next segment. We'll definitely answer this question, maybe get to one or two more. The number is 800-881-9270. And uh, – I think I'll throw it to both of you, and then we'll discuss it a little bit. And if we have another caller, we'll take that. But uh, join us in a, about 60 seconds. We'll come back uh, with Dr. Daniel, uh, Daniel Street and Everett Berry. Thank you so much. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with his word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's today's host, Andrew Abair. Thank you for joining us for our fourth and final segment of Ask a Theologian Anything Day. I have Criswell College professors uh, Dr. Everett Berry and Dr. Daniel Street. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, uh, let me just say that uh, I'm still at the college. I'm a Criswell College student and completely enjoy the classes. And you can have this kind of depth and insight and understanding uh, at the Criswell College. And uh, enrollment is open for the fall semester. You can visit www.criswell.edu and uh, hear this kind of teaching and this kind of insight on a day-to-day basis as you take classes. And I also want to say uh, I am the interim pastor of Fairhaven Baptist Church in Pilot Point, and in August, our church will be having a revival, August 24th, 25th, and 26th, and both Dr. Barry and Dr. Street will be preaching. Uh, Dr. Jerry Johnson will be preaching there, and uh, as will Dr. Barry Creamer. Uh, if you're interested in more information, you can email fbcpilotpoint at yahoo.com, fbcpilotpoint at yahoo.com. Uh, but I want to get back to a question I had asked earlier and uh, in the last segment, and that is uh, regarding the nature of tongues. And the argument, just to restate it for our listener, uh, the argument in our debate on tongues last week was uh, centered around 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. What is tongues? Is it a private prayer language? Should this 
be taken literally. First Corinthians 14.2 says, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. And uh, in our debate last week, Dwight McKissick said, Look, this is literal. This is the literal definition of prayer. And Russell Moore argued that this was a literary or a rhetorical device to correct a problem in Corinth. So I want to see uh, what your answers are, and we'll go to Professor Street first. Right. I don't think that it's a rhetorical device. I'm not sure that there's any parallel in ancient Greek literature for that being used um, as a as a rhetorical device, simply saying you're just babbling or speaking into the air, um, as I've heard it explained. I think Paul uh, does see you praying in in this tongue. Whatever this tongue is, it's something that you pray. And I think the key verse there is uh, in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 16. He says, I'll pray in the Spirit or with the Spirit. Um, he talks about singing in the Spirit, like singing psalms, most likely, or singing some kinds of songs. And then verse 16, bless in the Spirit. Um, and he says, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he doesn't know what you're saying? It's clear that this is a giving of thanks to God in a tongue, and the guy who's in your church and doesn't understand won't be able to say amen. He won't know what you said. So it seems to be a prayer that the community would then give its amen to. It's, it does seem to be a prayer. Um, here it's not private. Here it's in the church setting. Dr. Barry, do you think that this is the only thing it could be, tongues? Could, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 mentions a variety of tongues, and you see in places such as Acts chapter 2, uh, seeming to be a missionary, uh, a language for missionary type of purposes, speaking the gospel to people in other languages. Uh, can there be two types of tongues, or is, there, is it only a private prayer or, or a prayer language, or is it only a missionary language? What do you think? Well, if we're going back to 1 Corinthians 14, my concern is however you interpret prayer language versus foreign languages, you can't talk about tongues without also talking about prophecy. Because for Paul, clearly in the church, if you're going to have tongues, you have to have interpretation. He says in verse 28, if you don't have an interpreter, <clears throat> then don't bring it up in the church. Keep it silent, stay, keep it private, which brings up the interesting issue there again. But if you're going to have it in church, you need to have interpretation. And for Paul, tongues plus interpretation equals prophecy. And then whenever you have prophets interpret, you have to have prophets in the church validate whether the prophecy is valid. So for me, the whole issue of tongues, the, the, the issue that becomes uh, pressing for, for me is not whether it's prayer language or foreign languages, but what is prophecy? How do you interpret prophets today? If you're going to say tongues before today, I don't see how you can say there aren't prophets today as well. So do you th- when you say tongues plus interpretation equals prophecy, do you mean tongues prayer language or tongues? Well, but that's just it. It doesn't matter. If you say it's just foreign languages or if you say that it is a prayer language, for Paul, once it's, I mean, Joel as quoted in the book of Acts and the Pentecost, they're prophesying. But there, there's no one interpreting. People are hearing their languages. Here, Paul says, if someone interprets, it's still prophecy. So whether you hold to a prayer language or just foreign languages, it's still prophecy when it's interpreted. And in order to have prophecy, you have to talk about prophets. And that's where real issues really get uh, controversial. All right, we have time for one more caller. We have Michael from Dallas, and Michael, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay, uh, well, the reason I was calling in, I had a question about uh, uh, these super ministries or these mega ministries and the, uh, you know, the men who are uh, uh, handling those. And my question was, do you think it's egocentric for, and you, I guess you see this more with televangelism, is it egocentric for them to include their name uh, in the title of other ministries or to... Um, let's, uh, commercialize their ministry with their name. Dr. Barry. 
Well, I think that kind of question really entails motive interpretation, and we have Jerry Johnson live. I don't think Dr. Johnson is a narcissist. I think he's just trying to get the school out there, and he's using the, the president's name in order to do that. So I, I'm not just going to say that it, it's a hard, fast rule. Okay, if you have your name in the ministry, then it's egocentric. It is possible that people do that for that reason, but I don't think you can make a hard, fast rule. Okay, that's wrong to do that. Dr. Street, do you have anything to add? No, I think Dr. Barry has addressed it. It could be egocentric. People have a tendency to be egocentric. Um, I guess the question is, you know, is the focus of your ministry going to be on promoting you or promoting Jesus? Well, in the New Testament, I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where uh, people are claiming to be of Paul or of Mm -hmm. Apollos. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says, look, uh, I planted that's Paul speaking, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So ne- then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. So it's not a focus on man. And I, I guess I would see where Dr. Barry is saying it could be a focus on man if you've got your name on the ministry, but not necessarily. It could be just to identify you with a particular uh, theology or a particular group. Uh, looks like we'll, we'll try to take one last caller, Patrice from, Patrice from Louisville. Patrice, are you still there? Yes, I am. Okay, go ahead. Uh, quick question. To elaborate a little earlier, the gentleman who called about the lawsuit, um, I just want a little clarification. My husband and I currently have a lawsuit, um, and I really think we have forgiven the gentleman, but post-Katrina we had a situation with our home where under contract he agreed for you know, certain things as well as sale of furniture, and he didn't fulfill that. So we have a suit just to regain what he legally owes us, but... Is that unscriptural for me to pursue that, then? Dr. Street, 30-second answer. Well, I don't know how I could answer without knowing all the details of the case. Um, I guess, uh, once again, I don't know any way to, that I can get around uh, Jesus' words about if someone sues you and tries to take your coat, that you're supposed to give them your shirt as well. Um, that, that we should be in a position where our possessions are not our ultimate value where we're willing to lose them for the sake of witnessing to the gospel of Jesus. And uh, so I don't want to give you, you know, legal or even uh, theological advice on this, only to say that uh, you can judge your heart. You have, to, you have to determine where your heart is, and, and your heart needs to be in the place that says, if I lose my possessions for the sake of Jesus, I'll do it gladly. And that kind of forgiveness should be a reflection of the forgiveness that was shown us by God through Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to many men after that. And uh, the gospel is really what we're all about here at Jerry Johnson Live. Thank you so much for joining us for Theology Day. Tune in tomorrow as we have Pinnadexter back in this chair. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, President of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.